They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome, and welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, my co-host and wife, Caitlin, and I will read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. The story this week also comes with a trigger warning for childhood sexual abuse and casual racism. This week, we'll be reading Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's, one of the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl stories. Now take out your red pens, because we have a couple of notes. Published in 1958, Breakfast at Tiffany's follows a year in the life of an unnamed narrator as he gets swept away by the charm and mystery of his neighbor Holly Golightly, a young woman who lives on the edge. Capote based the character of Holly on several women he knew in his personal life, including models Dorian Lee and Susan Parker, socialites Marguerite Littman and Gloria Vanderbilt, writers Maeve Brennan and Doris Lilly, and actresses Una O'Neill and Marilyn Monroe. So, you know, no one important. However, the biggest inspiration was Capote's own mother, Nina Capote. Just like Holly Golightly, she came from a rural southern town, fled a teen marriage, moved to New York, and changed her name. Truman Capote has stated that Holly Golightly is his favorite character he has written. Caitlin and I had very different opinions on Breakfast at Tiffany's, and because it is a novella with a more meandering plot, we will be breaking format this episode in favor of just arguing. Caitlin, you really disliked this book. Can you tell us why? <laughs> I sure can, baby doll. <laughs> this is why we usually have a script. It is. Like, it feels very strange to break from format, but also necessary, because... It does, it does. How do you discuss Breakfast at Tiffany's? A book that I recognized by name and by association with the actress Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> but I really had no idea going into it what it was about. And now that we've finished it, I'm still not sure what it was about. <laughs> it's about Holly Golightly. It sure is. <laughs> no, I, I totally get what you mean. It, there's a reason we didn't put a real plot synopsis for this book because there really isn't much of a plot by means of our our narrator he's just sort of living his life watching things happen to holly yeah like this is not the first story that is structured around the idea of the straight man archetype coming into contact with the manic pixie dream girl yeah and it uh, certainly isn't the last <laughs> Can you explain to our audience what uh, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope entails? Sure. So for those of you that don't know, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a trope where basically you have this bland sort of milk toast character, usually a man, and he is generally either a stand-in for the writer, which this nameless narrator absolutely is a stand-in for Truman Capote. Mm -hmm. He is never given a name, but he is a struggling writer in New York City in the 1940s. He might be queer, unclear, but he's very hes very much Truman Capote. He's a Truman Capote stand-in. I really hope to goodness that I'm saying Capote, right? Because I, That's how I've heard it. That's how I've heard it, but I swear somebody's gonna come in and be like, it's actually... Cup of tea. <laughs> I don't think it's cup of tea or something. Um, but anyways, so so the Bandit Pixie Dream Girl, she 
is this mysterious woman who is not the main character of her story, but most of the plot revolves around her. She shows up in this man's life, he is for some reason not enjoying the life he's living. Maybe he's not getting the career goals that he wants, maybe he's bored with life, maybe he recently went through a breakup, what have you. And then this girl comes along and she is just everything he wishes he could be. She's vivacious, she doesn't care about social standards, she lives on the edge, she's a sort of nomadic type of person who's always going from place to place. She seems to just capture the eye of everyone. Of course, she's always beautiful, gorgeously beautiful without trying, but she also has all these affectations about her. Like, in modern day, you know, she'll probably have like blue hair and facial piercings and all those other things that like, they're not that uncommon and they don't, like plenty of people have those, but in the, in the context of the story, that's gonna make her so unique and so edgy and so different. And she comes in for a brief period of time. He never stays with her. She breezes into his life. They have an affair of some kind, whether it's sexual or just romantic, or if it's more like a pining. But she comes in and she turns his world upside down, and then she disappears off into the night. And he never sees her again, but he remembers her zest for life. And it makes him want to you know, grab life by the balls to be a better person. And she's like the key to his success now. And now he's writing this story all about her and he's a successful man. Modern examples you can think of might be uh, 500 Days of Summer, the musical Cabaret. Titanic is sort of a flip on it. You have the young woman who meets the meandering artist and then he dies and she never sees him again, but she does all the things she ever wanted to do. Spoiler, if you didn't see Titanic, it's like, 20 plus years old, you know. <laughs> I think the best example of uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl done right is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty decent one because there's a plot aside from just them meeting mm -hmm. and living their lives. Yeah, and the, and the character of Clementine's very three-dimensional. Oh, and they do end up together at the end. It's a great story that subverts a lot of the expectations with the genre. <laughs> yeah. Holly Golightly is very much a manic pixie dream girl, even down to her name. Her full name is Holiday Golightly. Holly Golightly. I mean, that is the most made-up freaking name. <laughs> and it is a made-up name. We find out that it is a made-up name. Just the holiday part, though. That's the weird one. No, no, the Golightly is made up, too, isn't it? No. Isn't it? It's not. It's not? Her real name is Golightly? It is! Oh, I didn't remember that. Because Doc's name was Doc Golightly. Oh, yeah! Right, it's her married name. Mm-hmm. You're so right. Yeah, her real name is like Luann or something. Lula May. Lula May. Lula May Go Lightly. Lula May Go Lightly. And she changed it to Holiday Go Lightly. Um, but yeah, and, you know, she's got her like super mysterious life. She's got all her gentleman callers, and you know, she's got these this accent that she puts it's on that she apparently learned by like she learned she used to have a thick Texas Oklahoma blend kind of accent, and then she learned French, and now she speaks English like as if she spoke French first. And so she's got this crazy accent, and she always wears these big, thick glasses, and she's always got the little black dress and the pearls, and just all the things about her that she's just she's so mysterious. No one knows where she came from and where she's going, and, like, that's the whole thing about Holly Golightly. And she's a, she's a delightful character. She is. She is, like, hands down, by far and away, the best part of this book. Yeah, she's a delightful character. But it's kind of weird, because, like you said, 
she's not the main character of this story. Yeah, it, it's weird that she isn't the main character of the story, since there is no plot to this story. So we just have our main character, who is such a non-character that he doesn't even get a name. Mm-hmm. Holly calls him Fred, which is the same name as her brother, up until her brother's death in World War II. And then she just starts calling him Buster. Yeah. Buster. We're used to the man in this situation playing the straight man so that he can seem calm and down to earth next to Holly Golightly's antics. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between the straight man archetype and a jug of milk masquerading as a human being. <laughs> and I think that's what we ended up with in this story. <laughs> like, he has no personality. None. Whatsoever. He barely reacts to anything that Holly does, which isn't even an effective serving of his trope. He seems uninterested in making the story progress further. He cares so little about his own story that he gets fired from his job at one point and tells us, the audience, that happened, it led to a crazy week, but I'm not gonna tell you about that. Let's get back to Holly. That is that is true, and I do, I do like wonder, I'm like, did Truman Capote write a second story that was like a spin-off of this and it never got published where it goes into that character's crazy week because I do want to hear that story. I don't think And I so. don't think he did. I think this guy is just a vessel for Holly, but he's an ineffective vessel because he doesn't serve the story. So we're just seeing like cut up pieces of a story through his window into Holly's life. It doesn't have a solid arc. And the only person that seems to change over his time knowing Holly is Holly. But we don't really get to see that from any type of internal situation. Because she spends most of her time ranting and raving about random stuff. And only letting him in, like, a little bit into her heart. So I'm going to go back to one point that you made, which is that he doesn't change at all. I'm going to make a big argument against that statement. I think he does change. And I think you can see how he changes specifically in one word, windows. Very early on in the story, there's a scene where Holly Golightly actually climbs through his window. She climbs, she lives in the apartment below him. She climbs up the fire escape and she climbs through his open window. And like the milkbread character he is, because I'm not going to lie with you, he's a blank slate. (laughs) He is a blank slate character. He just kind of is like, hello. You're in my room. Why? I don't think he even asks why. He's just like, you're here. And, you know, she doesn't even give him time to ask. She just busts in and she's like, hello, I'm your downstairs neighbor. I am in your room because I had a man in bed with me and he was a biter and I can't stand biters. So now he's asleep and I'm going to hide here until he leaves. And it's like, okay, you know, and he just kind of goes with that. Like he feeds her, he lets her sleep in his bed. He tells her about the story that he's writing, which she calls out the definite lesbian subtext that is in there. And he's like, what? I don't write about lesbians. And she's like, this is totally about lesbians. But don't get me wrong. I love lesbians. I want a lesbian to come live with me. You know, that's one thing. Holly Golightly is very pro-gay and I kind of live for it. Mm -hmm. But later we see a similar scene where he needs to go into her apartment for some things. She's been detained, he needs to go into her apartment, and the way he gets into her apartment is he climbs down the fire escape and he goes through her window. And it is a narrative parallel because the man that we met at the beginning of this book would never dream of doing something so scandalous. 
Like, that is not something that I think he would have done before he knew Holly. But now that he knows her, he's like, yes, this is the absolutely logical thing to do. And he does it more than once. He does it several times because she's indisposed. And so he has to go feed her cat. So that's just how he gets in. He never asks for a key. He just just keeps breaking into her house. Other similar things is she uh, she undresses in front of him at one point. When she undresses in front of him at first, he's like, oh my god, you're naked, ah. You know, he freaks out. But then later in the story, there's a point where he is injured and he strips down butt naked to get in the bath to ice his wounds. And Holly's right there. And he just sort of lets that happen. And they're not sexually involved at any point. And similarly, there are other points where she dresses, she unchanges in front of him and everything, and he doesn't react. And that's sort of a development of, like, he's getting deeper into her sort of bohemian world. He's becoming less and less shocked by her antics. The man that we eventually see after she has gone is a man who doesn't think twice about doing some of the crazy stuff that Holly Golightly does. He thinks about her and he thinks, you know, this is what Holly would do, why not me? So I think it's incorrect to say that she doesn't have any impact on him at all, and that he doesn't change at all from knowing her, because I think he does. I think in true manic pixie dream girl form, she teaches him to take risks. And we do see a positive growth from him, because in the epilogue we learn that his writing career has taken off, he's made new friends, you know, all these other things, like he's becoming more involved in the scene in New York. So I think it's incorrect to say that he didn't change at all from knowing her. I'll agree with you to some extent, but I think the changes that he went through were small. I think he went from being a stiff character to caring a little less about expectations and what people will think of him. But I don't see him going out and taking big risks or leaps or achieving anything magnificent. And I just see him caring a little less. Except that he's Truman Capote, so you know. Well, yeah, <laughs> eventually it took off. <laughs> so, like, he actually did take major risks and do, like, huge things and stuff, and he's kind of a gay icon. I mean, is it fair to judge the character of this no, book? No, it's not. It's not, it's not fair to judge himself. No, it's not. It's not. But when you consider that this was one of his earlier works and that it is kind of autobiographical, you know, I feel like you can look at that a little bit, but you're, you have a point that it's, you know its early developments. <laughs> it definitely reads like an earlier work because some of the writing was kind of lazy, contrived, there is a, isn't a good plot structure. I'll say that when you have a narrator who's so obviously a self-insert, you kind of have to be careful how you go about that because when you do things like actively telling your reader, I'm not gonna write about this, they're gonna see right through that and just realize that you as the author don't care. I think one thing we also have to consider is the time that this was written. This was written in 1958, where I think it was a little more common to to do that, because I have read other books from that time, you know, contemporaries of Truman Capote, and they did do that sometimes, where, like, if they were going to do a time skip or whatever, and they needed to let you know that something happened that was important to the character, but not necessarily important to the plot, they'd do that. They'd be like, oh, and also this happened, but that's not so important, so we're not really going to get into that. But it was strange to do it to the main character. Yeah. Well, I'll agree that was in line with the other writing styles of the time, and maybe I just don't care for that style, because it stands in opposition to the writing style of today. Yeah. And usually when I see that kind of writing, it has to do with side characters. Like, 
when they casually mention that two of the characters, Mag and Rusty, who are one of Holly's many, many boyfriends, and then Mag is uh, her best friend, that they've eloped. And then about 20 pages later, they mentioned that they later got divorced. Mm-hmm. Those are both mentioned just kind of casually in the background. Uh, he actually learns about them through the newspapers. He's like, oh, they got married. Oh, they got divorced. That's one of those things that you can put it in the background and just be like, we learned that this happened and we learned that it stopped. Mm-hmm. Because those weren't major characters. Yeah. They were just kind of there. And he didn't interact with them much. And it knowing that they got married and then they got divorced really only serves to inform what Holly is going through at this moment. Mm-hmm. We don't need to know. And then they went to Belize for their honeymoon. And then... They, you know, got drunk on margaritas, and then Rusty had an affair with a cabana boy. (laughs) I don't know. Whatever else could have happened. We don't need to know all of that, because it doesn't matter. We're never going to see these characters again. They literally never come back on on page, like in person. I keep wanting to say on screen. It's not a movie. I mean, it is a movie, but we're not reviewing the movie. (laughs) But think of them as characters, and think of what purpose they served to the narrator. Versus the purpose they could have served if this was actually Holly's story, told from her point of view. I feel like we could have gotten more mileage out of them. <laughs> that is that is an interesting point that you brought up, which is, could this story have been better if Holly were the narrator? And you bring up an interesting point that we could see more if Holly was the narrator. But I'll counter with, it wouldn't fit the genre, the trope, if Holly were the narrator. Because is that a bad thing? <laughs> I, I think it is. Because I think part of what is so grand about Holly Golightly, what makes her such an iconic character, is that it's so hard to separate the fact and the fiction from her. The, the timeline we get of Holly's life. Over time, we learn different things about her. We learn that when she was 13 years old, she and her brother were homeless. They were found by an older farmer who already had several children of his own and he agreed to house and feed them and care for them in exchange for Holly marrying him. Which, ew. (laughs) So she married him, she lived with him for a few years, and then she decided, I'm done being a child bride in Texas, and she ran away. She ends up in Hollywood. She gets discovered by an agent in Hollywood. When she is discovered by the agent, she is living on some train tracks. She's she's homeless again. She's living on some train tracks. She's entertaining men for money. Truman Capote has said that she's not a sex worker, per se. He describes her as an American geisha. Uh, but, you know. <laughs> so, this agent finds her. He tries to get her some roles. We learn that she suffers from a lot of mental illnesses, which is reasonable because we learned that she also suffered from some sexual abuse before she was married to the guy who turned her into a child bride and she was homeless so obviously that's a thing and you knows the depression i'm sure a lot of people are struggling during the depression and mentally not just financially and you know physically and all that we learned that she has seen a lot of psychologists and then we learned that she skipped town right before a huge screen test in hollywood and she moved to new york And then from that point, we kind of see her. We learn that she is visiting a man named Salvador Sally Tomato in jail once a week. 
and she thinks she's just keeping him company, but what she doesn't know is she's actually delivering drug messages to his lawyer for him. He is a kingpin of some kind, like a mafioso. And then she gets arrested for the drug charges. She skips town. She goes to Brazil. And then she's never heard from again. So her life before and after New York are very vague. We hear a rumor at one point that she might have gone to Africa, but that's kind of all we hear. And she tells stories, but it is impossible to know what stories are true and what stories are fake because a lot of her stories don't add up together. So to put the story in Holly's point of view, you immediately lose that mystery because now we know her childhood. She can't lie to us if she's the narrator. I mean, you can have an unreliable narrator, obviously, but it's more difficult. It's more difficult for her to lie to us directly as the narrator. Very sold, man, her being an unreliable narrator. I think that fixes any issue with losing her mystique and intrigue. Plus, you could do it third-person omniscient, so still not entirely getting what's going on inside of her. Isn't the idea of a third-person omniscient that you get what's going on inside of everybody? Oh, wait, so not omniscient, the other one. Third-person closed. Isn't that just closed in on one person? Yeah, it's third closed in on her. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's another one. There's second person, but who who the hell writes the second person? Uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I believe you're suggesting a third-person closed, but it would be closed in on someone that isn't her. No, I'm suggesting just not getting anyone's thoughts. I don't think there's a version of that in third person, is there? It's like a movie. Like a movie? Uh, you mean like a narrative kind of situation? I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever read a book that was written in third person and intentionally did not pick at least one character to be the point of view character and give us at least a little bit of their internal thoughts and feelings. I don't think that's a point of view style that I ever learned about in English class. Um, yeah, I could be wrong, but that's not something I've ever read. Can you think of an example of a book? I'm trying to, but I couldn't even find a good example for what I compared this book to earlier. Okay, we paused the recording for a minute to suss this out. I was wrong. Caitlin was right. <laughs> this yep. is a this is a thing. Caitlin, you want to read them the thing? This is called Third Person Objective. Third person objective is a point of view which has a neutral narrator that's not privy to the character's thoughts or feelings. The narrator presents the story with an observational tone. For example, like Ernest Hemingway's story, Hills Like White Elephants. Mm-hmm. Which, isn't that the... That's the one about abortion, isn't it? It is! Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that sometime for like a short story bonus episode. Anyways, so, that is a thing that is available. One thing is... That's not really from Holly's point of view, then, is it? It's kind of the same as this guy. But I think we But still just get without to get... him being a character. Yes, but then we get to see more of the story, and so the audience would know when she was getting in trouble with the mafia, but she herself would be oblivious. True, because we, we get to do things like follow her to jail and stuff. Yeah, and I think we'd just get more out of this story if we got to see those scenes. Okay, I'm I'm down. I hear you. Like Holly apparently has a miscarriage, but the story barely glosses over it, even though it was a huge part of her character development. That's true. I do remember the whole pregnancy and miscarriage. Up until the last moment, I wasn't even sure if the pregnancy was real. Mm -hmm. Or if it was just another thing that Holly was making up. Mm -hmm. And I kind of loved that. But I can also see how it could be frustrating. And if you're 
getting it from a third-person objective, you at the very least know, yes, she really is pregnant. Yes, she really is having a miscarriage. <laughs> As opposed to, no, this is just another one of her delusions. She thinks she's pregnant. She's making things up. Or at least, like, no for sure at the end. You could still kind of toy with the idea of her being delusional during her pregnancy. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a personal preference sort of thing. I liked our bland milk jug of the narrator. <laughs> and I think the reason I liked him is because even though he, as a person, really serves no purpose, <laughs> like, he doesn't do much aside from at the end when Holly needs to run away, he helps her run away. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I think he was a good character for me personally to project onto. And I think that was kind of his purpose. In addition to being a writer insert character, I think he was meant to be a reader insert character. And that was part of the charm for me with Holly, is that she is taking this man who, he's new to the city, he's nervous, he's struggling to build his career, and she turns him up, you know? She just gives his life this new vivaciousness, but in such a distorted kind of way and for me I really liked that but I can also understand how it's not everyone's cup of tea you know I think I think it's the Bella Swan debate of how she's such a bland character that the audience is meant to project themselves onto that you either love that you can imagine yourself in that situation or you hate that she is a loaf of bread masquerading as a human I love that I love that that is (laughs) That is exactly right. Fred Buster Truman (laughs) is the original Bella Swan. I dig it. I'm here for it. Very good. Let's change tone slightly. Let us talk about the ways in which this book was simultaneously progressive and also very much a product of its time. Yeah. Because my goodness. So I read this book out loud to you at points. And the number of times I had to go... I'm not reading that word. It's this word. And had to just kind of imply to you what the word was. I learned slurs I didn't even know existed in this book. And I will not repeat them on this podcast. I wouldn't even repeat them when I was reading them to myself. The offensive language. Here's where I stand on it. You can say it was a product of its time. And I will agree with you on certain words. (laughs) The time period in which it is written is an explanation for the language used in this book, but it is not an excuse. (laughs) Yeah, it's not an excuse. At all. Especially because I feel like by 1958, they knew the N-word. Yeah. (laughs) Like, let me tell you, I enjoyed Holly as a character. I loved her. She's so enjoyable. But when she drops the N-word, it's not cute. (laughs) And I understand that it's it's falling into her character. She is from a rural town in the Deep South, and it is supposed to be the 1940s. I get that that's how they spoke back then, but reading it now, 70 years later, it's so cringe. It's so very, very cringe. In the very first couple pages, there's a point where one of the characters, Joe Bell, who is a bartender that our narrator is friends with who also has a crush on Holly, he's relating that he has heard a tale that someone has seen Holly in Africa. And the story he is telling, he is referring to an Asian man 
who he does not know if this man is Japanese, but he refers to him by the shortened Japanese slur, you know, where you take just the first syllable of the word Japanese. He, he remarks that he doesn't know if this man's actually Japanese, he just knows he's Asian, and he's like, ah, close enough. And he also refers to the fact that from the story he heard, Holly might have slept with a black man. And he's like, but she would never. I mean, she was too good a girl to do something like that, you know? She was loose, but come on. <laughs> yeah, that was his exact right. She was loose, but come on. And it's like, okay, um, wow. Like, ooh. Uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. I'm just not gonna tolerate anyone making excuses that everyone was racist back in this time period. Because that's not true. Yeah. Racists may have been very loud in this time period, but they were not the only thoughts in the American consciousness. I want to bring up the example that at the time this book came out, and it was based about 10 years before it was written, but at the time this book came out was also around the time I Love Lucy started, mm -hmm. which centered around an interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. So there were definitely people at the time that knew that racism was wrong. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things that as long as bigotry has been a thing, there have been people who have known bigotry is wrong. Mm -hmm. So you can't argue, oh, well, it was just the times, do to do to do No one knew any better. <laughs> no one knew any better. That is completely and utterly false. And especially a guy like Truman Capote, who was living in New York City, who was part of the gay scene in New York City, who was hanging out with all these liberals. Like, he was one of those guys that got banned later on when the Red Scare came around and stuff. Like you know he was running in these liberal circles so he knew mm -hmm. he knew that there were people out there who were already starting to say like hey maybe we should treat japanese people and black people and everyone like they're humans and he even writes some of it into this book through his writings about gay people holly goes on not just one but several rants about how pro-gay she is. She doesn't use those exact words, but she makes references to things like, he tells her a story about these two women that are struggling to, you know, live a life together or whatever, and she says that, oh, it's about dykes. And she, used the word, she uses the word dykes, but I don't hold that part against it because back in the 1940s and 50s, that's what we called ourselves. Mm -hmm. We didn't use the word lesbian very much. We were dykes. <laughs> And she says, you know, oh, but I have nothing against lesbians. And they're dykes. I have nothing against them, you know. I'm... I want to find one to clean my house for me because they're such great roommates. <laughs> yeah, she, spe she specifically says she wants a lesbian roommate because having a lesbian roommate is like having a maid and a best friend in one. They're great housekeepers, she says. <laughs> I don't know where she made that connection, but that's what she went with because she's had lesbian roommates who were pining after her. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's exactly what it is. is she, she lures in these lesbian women who then live with her and basically become her happy little housemaker. Um, and it's even implied at one point that she herself has loved some women in the past because she's listing off her ideal partner at one point. She lists a couple of men who were popular at the time. She mentions like Willie Wilkes, who I think was a lawyer and things like that. And one of the people that she mentions as her ideal partner is Greta Garbo. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Holly's got some bi energy going on there. Mm -hmm. And I kind of live for it. She also has, you know, one moment where she's, she's talking about marriage and I don't remember how she got on the subject or why she was talking about it, 
But she does start talking about how basically she believes gay marriage should be legal. And she's like, I think men should be able to marry women, and women should be able to marry women, and men should be able to marry men, and I mean, goodness, if you told me you wanted to marry the giant squid, I'd be all fine with it, but oh, I remember what it is she's talking about. She's talking about, uh, she calls them whores. But what she means is women who sleep with men that they don't love. Mm-hmm. Because she's remarkable on the fact that she's loose, but she's not a whore. Because she at least tries to convince herself that she loves the men she sleeps with. Mm-hmm. And also, she's only actually slept with 11 men. Because what happens before you're 13 doesn't count. Which, again, this poor girl. This poor, poor darling. You know, but she's she's only slept with 11 men, and she's tried at least to convince herself that she loved them all, even if she didn't. Whereas women, in her eyes, women who sleep with men that they don't at least try to love, that's what makes a woman a whore. Not how many people she sleeps with, but how she feels about the people she sleeps with. Which is, uh, yes, not shamey, Holly, but, um, you know, I hear what she's saying, and, uh, given the time, I'm sure that was a very liberal view, but also, Holly, Holly, honey, you realize that by most people's standards at that time, 11 men, you were not considered a pure virginal flower, no matter how you felt about those men. I'm not shaming anybody, I don't care if you've slept with 1,100 people. Do you? And I don't care how you feel about them. Sleep with whoever you want. Sleep with people you hate. <laughs> Go for it. But just, that's how Holly Golightly feels. <laughs> you know, it is a little enigmatic the way they have her almost marrying a Brazilian man, but she drops the N-word, like, three times. <laughs> I think back then, like, Brazilian and Hispanics and stuff, I don't... I think they were considered white. I, I think they might... Um, it might have changed into nothing. There was a time which Hispanics were are considered white. I think it changed before this time period. I'm not exactly sure. Not sure either. But they definitely weren't by the 50s. But he had money. And she mentions that she doesn't mind sleeping with men of color as long as they have money. <laughs> Did she say that? She does. Because at the very end, when she, when she flies off to Rio, one of the first things she does is she calls a bunch of newspapers and she asks for a list of the top 50 wealthiest men in Brazil. And she's like, I don't care about their age. I don't care about their status. I don't care, like, their marital status. I don't care about their color. I just need to know their net worth. <laughs> she might be like that with all men. And so I think, I think it's that she doesn't, she doesn't discriminate based on things like race, as long as you're rich. <laughs> but, um... I'm going to bring this around to another example of when the language use was kind of weird and counterintuitive, mm-hmm. which is when we get a description of her talent manager, OJ. OJ. <laughs> Who the narrator calls a little person, which blew me away because I didn't know that colloquialism was around at the time. And I was about to applaud him and for using the term. And then he goes and describes him with words more akin to mythical creatures and animals, and then I'm like, oh, you can't do that. Yeah, he, you're, you're earning really, these points, and then you're taking away these good person points. He really made this man sound like he jumped right out of Snow White. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, it wasn't good. I think it's also meant to be heavily implied that O.J. Bergman is Jewish, because they do make several remarks about Mag Wildwood when she is insulting him. She makes references to saying Hitler was right. That's another thing. There are at least two 
confirmed Nazi sympathizers in this book. And they are both good friends of Holly's. Now, they both get their comeuppance in the end, I like to think, because they end up marrying each other and then having a horribly messy divorce. <laughs> but they are, they are both mentioned to be Nazi sympathizers. They're also both just described as just the worst people. Like, Mag Wildwood is one of them. She is described as having the most horrible stutter and a really weird voice. And she's supposed to be, like, tall and lanky and ugly. But she, she charms people with being funny. And confident. And confident. But then also she's got a temper. If she gets drunk, she's got a temper and she'll start yelling at everyone and apparently telling the short Jewish man that uh, Hitler was right. Then on the other side, you've got Rusty Trawler, who is repeatedly referred to as being an absolute fetus and a walking baby. <laughs> um, apparently he he just, he grew up, but his face never developed. And he looks that like- That sounds familiar. <laughs> Was that a read? It was a read. Is that okay? <laughs> shady bitch. Yes, it's okay, but shady bitch. Okay. You know what? I pull it off. You do. Anyways. But yeah, and it's also heavily implied that he might be he might be gay. He's either gay or he wants a mommy dom. Yeah, his parents died when he was young, and now he either he either is gay and or maybe wants to be a woman. Holly Golightly implies that at one point. Or he really wants dominant women to just step on him. Mm -hmm. Maybe both. You know, do you, man? Mm -hmm. But he is, he is read for filth throughout this entire book. <laughs> he is described as a fetus, a walking baby, a, you know, pile of dough. Like, he is just so much is said bad about him. And he is also mentioned several times to be a possible Nazi sympathizer. Like, he's rich, so you can't straight out say, like, oh, he's a Nazi, but, like, possible Nazi sympathizer. And they get married to each other, and then within a year they are messily divorced. So, I think that's worth noting that it's kind, it's kind of like if you write two deplorable characters in a book nowadays, and then you just sort of casually slide in, like, oh, and also they both voted for the Orange Invasion. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not major parts of their characters, but it's just subtly slipped in there like, you know, hey, just by the way, if you're wondering part of why I'm making these characters so awful, well, they're also Nazis. <laughs> um, so it's like, it's pretty clear that, you know, they're put in there because that was a political belief of the time that people held and unfortunately still hold, which is, you know. I suppose it was a good snapshot of the time to have the characters so all over the place in regards to language and yeah, what language is acceptable. Yeah, it's very much a snapshot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, because we noticed that uh, the, the narrator himself, he never uses any of those slurs. He refers to the Japanese man who lives upstairs as a Japanese man. He doesn't call him a JAP. He doesn't call him a Japanese or anything like that. He calls him a Japanese man, you know, when he refers to black people, he calls them Negroes, which, you know, feels icky now, but for the time, I believe that was the politically correct term. I think so. <laughs> you know, so like, he's kind of not using this language, but other characters are, and I do think it's sort of supposed to be showing the different attitudes that different people had. Mm -hmm. And it's not... It's not gratuitous. It feels gratuitous now because honestly having more than one racial slur in a book 
and having it not used for a very specific reason feels gratuitous now. But for the time period, for the length of the book, for the way that it's used, etc. Could you take all those words out and it still would be the same book? Absolutely. <laughs> so you can kind of make the argument that you should have known better at the time? <laughs> yeah, you can make the argument that he could have known better at the time. You can also make the argument that it's representative of how people at the time really talked. Mm -hmm. So you can go both ways on it. But there's definitely the argument that if we were to, say, make a new Breakfast at Tiffany's movie, we wouldn't need those words in it. It would not be necessary. I'd also like to point out, we did not watch the movie before reading the book. That's true. She's never seen the movie. I saw the movie once in high school, and I barely remember it. Mm -hmm. All I really knew about the movie was that everyone adored Audrey Hepburn, so no shade on her <laughs> yeah. for any of this. And apparently you do see the Japanese neighbor, and it was one of the worst examples of yellow face in Hollywood. Mickey Rooney. And I don't face. know why they did that, because he doesn't even play a part in this story. We never meet him. He doesn't. He's the upstairs neighbor. We see him one time during one of the first introductions of Holly, because one of her things about her, she's constantly losing her key. And so she's always buzzing the neighbors to have her buzz her in so she can get upstairs. And yeah, they, they include him in and it is a very offensive portrayal. You see him come out and the, the actor is doing this squinty eyed thing and his face is painted yellow and he's pursing his lips out and showing his teeth so that it looks like he has big teeth. And he's speaking in this very thick, fake accent, yelling at her. And it's just, it's, and he's got like shoe polish in his hair to make it look extra black. And it's, just, it's very, very uncomfortable. So the movie might be even more racist. Yeah, so it was it was not it was not necessary, especially because they took out in the movie other characters, but we're not gonna get too into the movie. I wanna talk about that cat. <laughs> I feel like that cat was a more interesting character than the narrator. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I feel like the cat deserves an honorable mention. So let's talk about this cat for a second. Because I feel like y'all at home need to understand about this cat. This cat is Holly Golightly's pet cat. She says that she found him one day when she was walking the streets. And he came home with her. And now he lives with her. But she hasn't given him a name because he's not hers. So she just calls him Cat. And, you know, he lives with her. But they're just, they're just roommates. He's not her cat. So she doesn't give him a name. A big moment in my opinion, for Holly, when she is fleeing to Rio after her trouble with the mob, you know, she asks Fred Buster Truman to bring all of her stuff, including the cat. And you're like, oh, she's gonna bring the cat with her to Rio. And instead she has the driver that's taking her to the airport stop in a neighborhood and she takes the cat out and she's like, go on cat, like this looks like a nice neighborhood, lots of rats around here for you to chase, go on, get. And she sends the cat away. And then they drive about a block and she realizes, oh my God, what have I done? I need my cat back. And she goes running through the streets looking for it. She's like, cat, cat, where's my cat, cat? And she can't find him. And she ends up going to Brazil without getting her cat back. But Milktoast Truman, Fred Buster, offers to go back and look for it. And he does eventually find the cat. He sees the cat in a warm window with curtains and he's well fed and he's groomed and he's got a home now. And he's like, oh, 
he's taken care of, he's got a home, he's probably got a name now. Like, everything goes well for the cat. And I feel like that is a representation for Holly, you know? She's been left on the streets so many times, but maybe one day, maybe she'll find her place, just like the cat. And I don't know why, but I just felt the cat needed a mention, because I felt so much for that damn cat. <laughs> I think it is worth mentioning because I think that was one of the best scenes in the entire book was when she tries to get rid of her cat but it's nuzzling around her feet and she gets upset and then she leaves but comes back and after she can't find him she's in tears and she talks about how she doesn't know that she loves something until it's gone and that really spoke true to her character about not feeling like she belongs anywhere not knowing what's valuable to her until she no longer has it and always wanting to chase something else. Mm -hmm. And I really wish we could have had more of that throughout the whole book. Mm -hmm. It was good. It was good stuff, yeah. And I just... Uh, that cat! <laughs> I love that cat. You had something else you wanted to discuss. What was it? I did. Um, I think one of the scenes that we should mention because of how weird it played out okay. <laughs> was meeting Doc Golightly. That was a weird scene. That You're was right. a very weird sequence that didn't really go anywhere and was very info dumpy. You want to tell the listeners who Doc Golightly is? I will. <laughs> so Doc Golightly appears at about halfway through the story, and he is Holly Golightly's quote husband. Mm -hmm. She insists that they were never legally married, and I take her word for it. I don't know what the child bride laws were like in Texas in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. She always sticks to that narrative of, we were kind of married, but not really, because it was, I was only 13, so it probably wouldn't have even been legal. And surely if it was legal, she would have known that she signed papers. She does mention that he slept with her, though. She does. Which again, ow. So at about halfway through the book, Buster... <laughs> finds an older man prowling around their lobby. So then this guy follows him and stalks him to a bar, which does not really raise any alarms with him. He doesn't seem overly concerned. Yeah. He assumes this guy's with the mob, right? I don't- That was one of his first I assume he would have been more scared if he was with the mob. It's Buster. He's gonna barely react to things around him. He does. He does barely react to things. I- I remember him wondering if this guy was connected to Sally Tomato because he knew from the beginning that Sally Tomato was a mobster, even though Holly didn't. And of course he didn't say anything to her. He was never like, hey, have you considered that maybe the Sally Tomato guy is giving you weather reports that are actually codes for drugs? <laughs> he doesn't say a thing. Totally. <laughs> but uh, the creepy old guy follows him to a bar, sits next to him, and shows him a picture of himself with Holly back when she was 13. And at first, Buster's like, is this, oh my gosh, this is your daughter. He's like, no, this is my wife. Now you might think that's weird, but let me tell you. Yes, a lot of 13 year olds probably shouldn't be getting married, but she knew what she was doing. She was so mature for her age. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All that creepiness. Shudder, shudder, shudder. And so then Buster listens to this guy tell the story about how Holly was an orphan who came to his farm and they got married and then she left a year later. Yada yada. And despite how extremely creepy this all was, he takes this guy right back to Holly. Why? First of all, you don't know if he's telling the truth. You think this little girl in the picture might be Holly, 
But yeah. it's an old photo. <laughs> and he also mentions that it doesn't totally look like Holly. That this this little girl is, first of all, she's little. And second of all, she's like chonky. And she just, she does not look like Holly. <laughs> but all Buster's thinking of is, Holly and I had a fight when we last talked. And I can't wait to see the look on her face when I walk this guy right up to her door. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like, this is kind of end up in a dangerous situation. Like, if this happened in real life, so many red flags, call the police. Yeah. But then Holly sees him and she's like, oh, hi. And then Buster just leaves them alone because this wasn't a dangerous situation. But then turns out, no, it wasn't dangerous. Holly just sleeps with him and then walks into the bus station and tells him basically a wild horse can't be tamed. And he accepts that and goes home. And it's like, what? So to recap, Buster was stalked, or rather Holly Golightly was stalked, and then Buster became mixed up in it. He was followed by an elderly man who confessed to him that he took a starving orphaned girl and he told her if you want to live I'll feed you and take care of you if you sleep with me 13 year old child who is almost as young as my own children from my first marriage then he followed her to New York after she escaped his clutches and then Buster just hears this story okay you essentially kidnapped and assaulted a 13-year-old girl and made her your child bride for a year, and then you followed her here. Let me take her to you. She's still only 18 at this point. She might have just turned 19. Because the beginning of the book, she's a few months shy of her 19th birthday, it says. And in the end, she's 20. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he takes her, he takes this guy to this 19-year-old girl's door, where she lives alone, and is like, hey, it's your rapist. <laughs> Joke's on you! Bye! Bet you wish you'd been nicer to me last time you saw me! And somehow, Holly just wheels her way out of this. And, like, I'm not mad that she got out of this unharmed. I'm not mad that being with him wasn't a traumatic experience for her because you're entitled to your feelings about what happened. I'm just saying this is... My belief is not suspended enough for this. <laughs> I also remember that after she sends him away, Buster Truman Fred is kind of judgy about the fact that she slept with Doc. She she ends up having to be like, well, I had to, you know, he wouldn't leave if I didn't or whatever. And he's like judgy about it. And he doesn't say anything directly to her, but he's like, he's like, tisk tisk tisk, Kali Golightly, you know, of course she slept with him, that's how she'd be. Excuse me, you're the one who brought her rapist to her door. What did you think was gonna happen? I don't know. She's surviving. Not a good move. And then he just leaves after getting wild horses can't be tamed. Yeah. I mean, I think he was a horse doctor, so was in his wheelhouse. <laughs> but nevertheless, he had so much determination up until this point. He was like, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you home. Yeah, because he kept being adamant that she needed to come home for her children, which were not her children, they were his children. But he was so- And they're definitely grown by this point, at least mostly. Yeah, I mean, like, grown enough. But he was like, so out of me, he was like, she needs to come home for the children. Or as he calls them, churin. She needs to come home for the churin. Mm -hmm. I was like, dude, those are your kids. Those are your kids, not hers. I wish this played into an overall plot and then we could justify having this, but otherwise but no. it's just- 
it just feels like an info dump of her backstory and it doesn't feel earned and it feels bizarre. Exactly. He's mentioned one more time, which is when she's arrested, and our narrator considers calling him because he knows that she's gonna need like a lawyer or something. But then he ends up deciding not to because he's like, no, he's the last person Holly would want me to call. It's like, oh, now you have a conscience? <laughs> now you're thinking about what Holly might want and how she might not want to be involved with this man? <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of anticlimactic. Just like the ending was kind of anticlimactic when she's like, I'll just run away to Brazil because the government won't mind. <laughs> you know, and then the government doesn't mind. And then the government doesn't mind. That, that was true. The government did not mind. It's, it's mentioned that the next time he hears about Holly is through, after she leaves, is through newspapers. And it says, like, you know, wanted socialite found in Brazil or whatever. And they don't pursue her. They don't go out, try to catch her or whatever. Because I guess they didn't, they didn't need her to make their case. And they were like, eh, just let her go. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> but at the same time, her running away and ditching Bale, absolutely a Holly Golightly thing oh, yeah. to do. 100%. Mm-hmm. Especially because her reasoning was she already had a plane ticket before she was arrested. And I'm not going to just miss my flight. Yeah. <laughs> because she was with a new man at that point who was the Brazilian that she was engaged to. Yeah, the Brazilian diplomat. And then she gets arrested in Association de Sal Tomato. <laughs> Sal Tomato. And they then... call her Sally Tomato's Tomato. <laughs> and then her Brazilian boyfriend breaks up with her over a letter. Yeah, because he's trying to be a politician. He can't be attached to this. Yeah, you know, this is crazy. <laughs> and she's very upset about it, but she's still going to use the plane ticket to Brazil. <laughs> and she's like... It's fine. I'll find another rich man. <laughs> yeah, she's like, just send me a list of the top 50 richest men in Brazil, and I will work my way through them. But I also feel like this relationship with him was supposed to mean something, because it clearly means something to her. I just don't see how it's connected to anything else. I just wish the story was more well-connected and thought out. <laughs> I enjoy the sort of meandering wildness of it, but again, get how it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like... <laughs> It's very of its times in the way that it's a lot of telling and not a lot of showing, which feels distant when you read it. You don't feel like the characters are emotionally invested if they're just recounting things that already happened to themselves. Yeah, and he does, he actually starts the story out talking about how it's been years since he saw Holly go lightly. Mm-hmm. So literally the prologue of this book is, here's how I got the idea to write this story. Mm-hmm. And so it does kind of put you in that distance of, like, you know that you're reading something about something that happened years and years ago. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know. I liked it. I get that. I guess I just can't escape, like, the lens of what the book could be because I wasn't satisfied with what I received. That's fine. Do you have any nitpicks? Huh. Honestly, no. I, I read... A review at one point of this book that said they wouldn't change even two words of Breakfast at Tiffany's. I would change two words. Um, the N-word and the J-word. <laughs> but overall, I really, really did like this book. I love the character of Holly Golightly. And I do enjoy this sort of distant narrator storytelling where the characters around the narrator are kind of more interesting than the narrator themselves. And you're just sort of watching this amazing story play out through an innocent bystander who doesn't really take part in the story until the end. I personally enjoy that kind of story, so I liked it. 
So, I don't have any major nitpicks aside from what I've already discussed. <laughs> so yeah, that's me. Are those your final thoughts? Or just... I just realized that we didn't mention what the title actually meant. Oh, yeah, we didn't actually mention the title. And that's funny because I do remember about halfway through the book, you remarked, we're halfway through breakfast at Tiffany's and we have yet to have breakfast or meet Tiffany. I'd like to point out, we never do have breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> mm-hmm. So to, to reference breakfast at Tiffany's, it is called breakfast at Tiffany's because one of Holly Golightly's many little quirks is Tiffany's, the jewelry store, is her happy place. Mm-hmm. She loves to just go to Tiffany's and walk around. And particularly, she likes to go in the morning and have her breakfast at Tiffany's. Because it is a place where she feels like she belongs. It's a place where she feels safe. It's quiet and it's gentle and she just, she loves to get dolled up and go to Tiffany's. And I almost relate to that. Mm -hmm. Because I also have places that like, I have no business being there. Because that's the thing, she has no business being at Tiffany's. She can't afford a dang thing from Tiffany's. (laughs) She's poor or she just pretends to have money. She mentions that the way she makes most of her money is by telling men that she's going to the bathroom and asking for a tip so that she can tip the bathroom attendant, and then she keeps the money. For those of you who don't know, bathrooms used to have attendants who would, like, give you perfume and towels and stuff. Like, their whole job was just to sit in the bathroom. (laughs) That's how she makes her money. (laughs) She goes out to dinner with men, and when she needs to go to the bathroom, she's like, can I have a tip for the bathroom attendant? And, you know, a tip for a bathroom attendant would be, like, a few cents, but... They give her like 50 bucks and then she just pockets it and that's how she makes all her money. So she doesn't have money for Tiffany's, but she loves to be at Tiffany's. It's her favorite thing. And I vibe with that because I also love going into places that are too expensive for me and pretending like I'm going to buy something and just kind of wandering around. I think it's a fantasy. I think it's a fantasy thing where, you know, when you can't do something, but you want to live in that moment and pretend that you can, and have people treat you like you can. You know, part of the thing is she gets dolled up, she puts on her pearls, she puts on her glasses, and she goes to Tiffany's, and she lets them pander to her. She lets them act like she can buy things, and then she just doesn't. And one of the big moments between her and the narrator is he gets her a very small little pendant thing from Tiffany's. You know, it's nothing big, it's not a diamond or anything, but it it comes in that Tiffany blue box. It's from Tiffany's. It's her own little piece of Tiffany's that she gets to take with her. And it's one of the few, like, possessions that she wants to take with her to Rio when she leaves. So yeah, that's the story behind the title. And one more reason why I personally relate to Holly Golightly and enjoy the story. I like the idea of it. I think it ties into the idea of Holly not really feeling at home anywhere. And it makes sense as to why this would be a place where she feels comfortable. It's just that we, the narrator never goes to have breakfast at Tiffany's with her, so we never do as an audience. So I don't feel like the title is really connected to the story enough to justify being the title. It's more like a, when it gets name dropped, you go, roll credits. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, what about breakfast at Tiffany's? That is all we can use of that song. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess I'll go into my final thoughts. Yes, final thoughts, please. My final thoughts are... I love the theme that we were going for with this story. 
the idea of never really feeling like you belong anywhere and constantly trying to both find yourself as well as find a place where you belong and find a true passion even, whether that be in a career or in a lover. And Holly's search does hearken to a lot of the human experience of feeling of not belonging. I just don't like the way it was executed. It felt too fragmented for my taste and I just couldn't get behind the narrator being so bland and uninvolved in the story that he was leading. I would love to see a remake that was a lot more focused and much more Holly-led, regardless of whether or not we get our milky toast buster. I feel like you still gotta have him. We'll see. Maybe a more talented writer could have done better. Did you just call Truman Capote untalented? In this story? Yeah, at this point in his career. The writing wasn't that good. The shade of it all. It wasn't good. <laughs> we just lost, like... Like, this was amateur hour over here, okay? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> we need to end this episode before we suddenly get so much hate. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. I'm not going to say it sucked, but going into final rating. <laughs> yes, give us your final rating. All right, I'm going to give it two out of five Tiffany jewels. Lovely. Well, I personally loved this. I'm going to give it four and a half out of five cat paws. Wow. Right? That is it for Breakfast at Tiffany's. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to more on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and Spotify at A Couple of Notes. You can follow us on Twitter at Couple of Notes. And if you want to supply us with some red pens, you can support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash couple of notes. Please share our podcast with any book enthusiasts in your life. Yes. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet back here after, after the, the next, next chapter. chapter.